0: Let's uh, pray as we come to look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for Matthew and the other gospel accounts of this Gethsemane experience that Jesus and the disciples had. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly tonight. We pray that your spirit would help us to learn what you want to teach us from it. Amen. Well, uh, for the uh, benefit of uh, visitors here, we're in this series in Matthew's Gospel, and the last couple of weeks we've been in Matthew chapter 26. But uh, tonight we're in this particular account uh, within Palm Sunday, and uh, suffering, of course, is a fact of life for humanity. We can't turn, can we, on the news without seeing pictures, something like this, for instance. It takes many forms of suffering throughout the world. Suffering, of course, in itself is not a good thing, but it is a fact of life. We're all going to experience suffering to some extent within our lives. The question is, perhaps, is how do we deal with it? Does our faith, if we have one, does our relationship with Jesus, if we're followers of him, help us in any way to come to terms with suffering? Well, within this account, we see Jesus, and to a much lesser extent, the disciples, in a suffering situation. And through it, we can see more of who Jesus is and his response to the agony of this situation through temptation by prayer. Now, as I said, we've been in this, uh, this chapter recently. So I'm going to ask you to do something different tonight. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes... And use your imagination to see if you can get into this situation. Because earlier in this chapter of Matthew's Gospel, we've had the record of Jesus being anointed by Mary in the home of Simon the leper. His body being prepared for death and the grave. So picture the scene We're in this room in this house of Simon the leper and Mary is there and she anoints the body of Jesus. And then later in that day, in the evening, Jesus celebrates that Passover meal with those people present. Imagine the situation again. There's the table there, they're all sitting around and Jesus is giving them the Passover meal. And then he instigates the Lord's Supper at this final Passover meal. Time goes on, they finish the meal, and then they go out into the night, and it's dark. It's very dark. No electricity, no gas lamps, maybe some oil, maybe some candles, but it's very dark. And Jesus leads the disciples out onto the Mount of Olives, a place that they knew of because they'd been there several times. And whilst they're going there, Jesus predicts that the disciples will leave him and Peter will deny him three times later that night. They get to a place called Gethsemane. It's a garden within the Mount of Olives. It means that the olive press because there were olive trees there and they pressed the olives to make olive oil. A place again where Jesus often went to with his disciples, but it's dark. And when they're there, he leaves the disciples and he calls just three of them, Peter, James and John, those who'd been with him right from the beginning, those that were closest with him, to go away with him, to share in this time of agony and suffering. Now, it's interesting to note at this stage that it's these three who'd also been with Jesus on the mountaintop at his transfiguration, when God had appeared and he was glorified. You remember also that those three had been with him at one of his greatest miracles. They had experienced the fullness of Christ, as revealed by the Father. But they were being chosen by Jesus to share in his suffering. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John apart from the rest. And it's within this dark garden, dark because it's nighttime, but also spiritually and emotionally dark for Jesus that these events unfold. So, We can now open our eyes. If you've got the picture, turn to the passage. We're on page 997. Because here we see more of who Jesus is and what his responses are to the darkness of temptation, betrayal, but also to his submission to his Father's will in response to suffering. So what do we see here concerning Jesus' character? Well, the first thing I think we see is we see something of his humanity, something of his humanity. Look at verses 36 to 38. Now, although this situation was unique because only Jesus had had to suffer like this, we can recognize that Jesus had experienced temptation and suffering like humanity, like us when we suffer. We often want to share in the pain with those that we love. And here we read that he wanted the company of these three disciples to share in his sorrow as he was struggling as he was struggling with the temptations in front of him. Now the strength of this struggle is given by the words sorrowful, troubled even to death. In other words, he was very troubled. Look at verse 37. Now, this is not just Matthew writing here. Mark and Luke writes the same. Mark records that he was troubled and deeply distressed, Mark 14. And in fact, in Luke's account, which you'll find in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, we read this. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, why did Luke write like this? Well, maybe because Luke was a doctor. He gives us an even clearer insight into these struggles. Because Luke states that the the struggle that Jesus was undergoing was so severe that it caused him to sweat droplets of blood. Now, as I was looking at this, I hadn't realised, but this is actually a medical condition. It's caused by stress on the capillaries to burst, and blood drips out of the skin. Distress, of course, is often caused when we know what's going to happen to us or our loved ones. If we know, for instance, our loved ones are only going to live for a short time, this may cause even greater stress to us than if they die unexpectedly. Well, Jesus knew the temptation that he had to face to avoid going voluntarily to the cross. But he also knew what was coming, for he told his disciples three times that he was going to die. And he knew that his father's will was for him to die a painful death on that cross. And of course, for Jesus, there was not only the physical pain of the crucifixion to endure, but also the pain of carrying the burden of our sins and being separated from his Father as he took on the punishment for our sins on that cross. Now the prophet Isaiah predicts of this. We read of this in Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah writes this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we read also in Matthew 27, verse 46. We read of Jesus on the cross, crying out in the ninth hour, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read also of this in Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 10, referring to his vehement cries and tears. Jesus was likely troubled because he knew that his hour had come when he would be separated from the Father, killed and taking the punishment for mankind's sins upon himself. So, it's a tired place of agony. Jesus was deeply stressed. But we also see something here about Jesus' identity, that he was the Son of God, because he prays to God and he calls him Father. Look at verse 39. The word used here is Abba. It word means Father, or the one whom I trust. And so Jesus confirms his status as the Son of God. And, of course, it's this status which the religious leaders will later accuse him of, saying he was being blasphemous. But as the Son of God, he displays his humility in the prayer that he makes because he also submits to the Father. Look at verses 42 through to 44. He wanted to escape the cross but only if mankind's salvation were possible without his death and only if this was within his father's desire. But he's always willing to give in to his father's will. And we see here also that he, he depends upon God. Look at verses 41, 43 through to 46. So then we see that Gethsemane, is a place of intense suffering and distress for Jesus. It's a place of intense suffering and distress for Jesus. So then, how did Jesus respond to this distress and suffering in this garden? Well, we read that he responded by coming to his father in prayer. But what prayer? He, because this place was also a place of his strength. We see in his prayers that it was a prayer of agony, it was a prayer of agony. Now, we see this in the way he actually prays. Look at his posture. He falls on his face, verse 39. Now, surprisingly, this is the only time we see this picture in the New Testament. The only time we read of Jesus lying flat out on the floor. This posture shows his desperation and humility, Prayer, of course, was a common feature of his life. We're told in the Gospel that Jesus frequently went apart from others to pray. In fact, we read of major periods of prayer before Jesus' ministry took place. Think about that time of the temptations where he went out into the desert and prayed through the night for many days. But here, we see his posture of falling face down shows the strength and emotion that led to prayer. But this is also seen in his words. Look at the words he used. He says, "'Oh, my Father, if it is possible, "'let this cup pass from me.'" Verses 39, 42, and 44. Now, the words, of course, "'Oh, my Father,' lifts this whole episode up from an abject appeal to an infinite uh, communion with 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 the Father. He wants to commune with his Father, and he wants to do the will of the Father. And he uses the word cup here. Now, it's very important we understand what the word cup here signifies within the Bible because it signifies different things in different places. We read in Psalm 16, for instance, that the cup refers to God's blessing. In Jeremiah, we read of the cup being the wrath and disaster of God. And we read in Psalm 116, the cup being used for salvation. Well, here, the cup... Signifies the punishment that Jesus' death will be for the sins of all of mankind, which will bring salvation to them. And so the temptation for Jesus was to avoid taking that path to the cross and so fulfilling the purpose of the Father. But we also see in this prayer of Jesus to the Father a godly fear, a fear that he could not carry out what was required. Hebrews 5 says this of him, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, his learned obedience through what he suffered. Not that the cup of suffering was removed, but that he would be able to drink from it. But also, we see from this prayer that Jesus showed that he was prepared to do his Father's will. He was submitting to his Father's will. Look again at his words, verse 39 Not as I will, but as you will. If this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink of it, your will be done, verse 42. Now, this is the very opposite, of course, of what we read earlier in Genesis 2 about man and his will. Man said in Genesis 2, "'My will, not thine be done.'" And what was the result of that? Well, it was the result of man then committing sin and being turned out of the presence of God. But when Jesus said, "'Not as I will, but as you will,' this made possible the victory over sin.'" And access to God the Father, and it prepared Jesus to go to the cross. It made it all possible. So what then was the response of this prayer then Well, it was one of comfort for, joy, for jesus we don 't see this in this particular Passage, but if you turn to Luke twenty-two verses forty-two to forty-three, you will you will read this. Luke writes this: Jesus saying, "Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done." And then it goes on to say, "An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him." Now, this is not the answer that Jesus had requested let this cup pass from me. But no, God gave him strength from an angel. It reminds me rather of the event which Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians, if you remember. Paul suffered from the thorn of his flesh and he asked God to remove that thorn from him. Well, God didn't do so, but he made it possible for him to be living despite the thorn it's the same here with Jesus. And but what else did he get? Well, not only did he get comfort from the prayer from the angel, but he was strengthened to go on with the task in hand. So we see in verses 45 through to 47 that Jesus was ready to face that hour at hand. He was ready to meet his betrayer and those that were with him. He was strengthened to do his Father's will. So there we have a bit then about Jesus and his character. What can we say about these three disciples present in the garden? Well, the first thing we can say about them, of course, is they were obedient. They followed Jesus into the garden. Clearly, Jesus loved them. He wanted to be with them. Clearly, though, he knew what they were like and what they needed to do if they were to help him. Jesus recognized that they were needing strength to enable them to fulfill their roles. So he instructs them to seek strength through prayer. They were to pray that they might not enter into temptation. Temptation. What sort of temptation? Well, temptation to deny who Jesus was, to disown him they were to pray that they might remain vigilant through this period of trial and temptation. And although we read of their failure, later in the account, we find that Jesus still loves them, still has a purpose for their lives after his resurrection. And surely, this should be a clear encouragement to all of us who seek to follow Jesus. He loves us. He's consistent in his love for us, even when we fail to live up to his commands and service. So then, how can we conclude from this dark picture that we've got in front of us tonight? Well, surely we conclude that the Garden of Gethsemane was a place of both suffering and strength. Although this is a unique event, one that is part of God's plan of salvation, we can also see it as a picture of our lives. Jesus entered the garden suffering. We enter suffering. He left the garden strengthened in his resolve, and we too can be strengthened. But what turned the place of suffering into a place of strength? How was it that Jesus was able to go from suffering to strength? Well, surely it was prayer, wasn't it? Look at Jesus' example. His praying, his praying is fervent and persistent. It's fervent and persistent. Jesus prays three times, calling out to his father in distress and temptation. Well, surely, if this is all right for Jesus to call out to his father in prayer, it's okay for us to do the same. We can call out to God when we're in pain, in distress or temptation. But note in this prayer, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. He submits to the will of the Father. This is the clue, isn't it, and how we are to pray. Think about the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gave us. Within it, we read, We pray that thy will be done. And so, do we need to submit to the will of the Father? so that we are praying to the will of the Father, although we won't always know what this is. But it's also a prayer which strengthens us, prayer that strengthens us, prayer that enables us to face the cup of life, the problems given. Of course, there will be times in our lives when we enter our own garden of Gethsemane. There will be times of stress and sorrow and loneliness. But these can also be times of comfort and strengthen, accepting the Father's will. Because if we don't accept the Father's will for a situation, then we can't expect our prayers to be answered and to have peace. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gave us the words, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come. Submitting to the will of God is vital if we are to walk with Jesus in our discipleship. So Jesus found prayer to be the key for turning a garden of suffering into a garden of strength. And as Christians, we have similar blessings to be found in prayer. I want to leave you with two blessings, two promises that we are given in the Bible concerning this. If you remember that passage that comes from Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7, look what it says. The writer Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Well, may we never neglect to utilise this wonderful gift, especially since we now have Jesus himself to intercede on our behalf. Remember what the writer of Hebrews said concerning this. Hebrews 4, verses 4 to 16. The writer says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a fantastic promise for us to get hold of tonight. And remember, Jesus promises to pray for us. Again, Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore, he who is able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Jesus is praying for his disciples. He is praying for those that follow him. And that didn't stop in the first century. It goes on and on and on until he will return again a second time. So, Gethsemane, a time of sorrow, a time of strife, a time of agony, but also a place of strength. We can take hold of that tonight. We can thank God that we have the gift of prayer. We can come before him in all our needs and sorrows. Amen.